The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Have you ever thought about how you could make your landscape beds more interesting and productive? Well, maybe harvesting tomatoes among your hydrangeas or picking broccoli from around your azaleas. How about growing squash or zucchini with your zinnias? These are all foods, plus many more, you can grow in your landscape beds this next season. Our conversation today is with Bree Arthur, a well-known leader in the National Foodscape Movement. Bree is a best-selling author and celebrated speaker that is well-known for her lively, information-packed presentations. With more than a decade of experience as a grower and propagator, she now shares her expertise as a correspondent on the Emmy Award-winning PBS television show, Growing a Greener World. You can follow Bree's exciting garden journey through her website, breegrows.com, and on her YouTube channel, Bree the Plant Lady. This is episode 40, Foodscaping Revolution, with Bree Arthur on the Garden Question Podcast. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question Podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Brie, what is foodscaping? Foodscaping is a really easy idea, and it's not new. It's just something that we're bringing back to the forefront to get people to be creative about growing some of the food that they love in the most convenient places that they have, namely their landscape beds. The idea is just simply incorporating edible plants in with your favorite ornamental trees, shrubs, and flowering perennials. You can even grow food in containers. It's really just to help make the most out of the land that you're stewarding. It looks fun, and I know you just said it's not something new. Is this something in history that we've done before, and why is it important? It has a lot of historical roots. In fact, prior to the time where horticulture was kind of a symbol of economic relevance, people often grew vegetables in convenient areas to their homes. If you think back to the Potager Gardens of France, certainly the edible landscaping movement that Rosalind Creasy has been preaching, this is just a concept that is intended to just allow people to be creative and grow plants with a greater purpose. Why is it important to us? Well, I think that there's a lot to be said about the personal satisfaction of going outside and harvesting something that you've grown. Certainly through the pandemic, we've seen an incredible increase in a whole new realm of people that are interested in gardening and very specifically gardening with food crops. In the suburban landscape, we actually have a lot of issues with homeowner associations and different landscaping rules. 
foodscaping is just an idea to help get people to understand how they can grow food in a beautiful way that won't offend their neighbors. They won't get any fines from their homeowner association. They can actually get that satisfaction of having grown something that they can share with their friends and family and hopefully teach the next generation where food comes from. There's also this incredible dilemma that we have in that we have food miles attached to every product that is at a grocery store. Anything that you grow yourself that makes it so that you don't need to buy will help actually lower that food mile that is attached to every product. As of 2021, the average food miles in the United States runs about 2200 per product. If you go to the store and buy 20 things once a week, you actually have to multiply that by 2200 just to understand the transportation costs of getting those products to you. If you can just grow a few things yourself and change a habit at the grocery store, it actually shakes out to make a much bigger difference than you just growing some salad greens for yourself. And I really think that there's a huge opportunity for people to just start thinking critically about a handful of things that they eat all the time and coming up with creative ways that they can incorporate those into their landscapes to be able to be a little bit more self-sufficient. What are you seeing how foodscaping works with eliminating food deserts? Well, it's a really powerful approach. We have land everywhere. And I actually live in an area that would be considered a food desert. If you don't have a vehicle, you don't have really any reasonable way to access fresh produce. The idea behind foodscaping is gauging all of these residential and commercial landscapes in a way that they could be growing food to then be distributed throughout your local community. Often that's working with food banks, also working with public schools and with different church outreaches. There's just endless opportunities to be able to make a difference in the community that you actually live in so that the food isn't having to be transported far distances and that it's actually fresh and ready to be eaten by people who have considerably less opportunities than, say, someone like myself who has a big sprawling suburban yard. I grow more food than my family can eat. It's a really wonderful outreach to be able to grow something that I know is going to go to people that need it. I began reading your best-selling book, The Foodscape Revolution, Finding a Better Way to Make Space for Food and Beauty in Your Garden. I found it exciting just to start thinking about all the possibilities. What inspired you to develop the foodscape concept? I'll tell you, uh, the best ideas are born out of necessity. And in my case, I've just had found myself having purchased a home in the subprime market. And I just simply wasn't earning enough money from my full-time job to pay my bills and also grocery shop. I realized, gosh, you know, I have an education in horticulture. I know how to grow plants. My specialty was ornamental plants. I could take that knowledge and apply it and be able to grow some of the food that I wasn't able to afford to buy at the store. It was a remarkable experience for me because I was met with some challenges from my homeowner association. It took some time and negotiation and really sitting down and learning and listening to their concerns so that I could come up with the ideas to be able to make it so that I could take advantage of the sunniest areas of my landscape, which were, of course, in my front yard, but not offend any of my neighbors by this experience of growing vegetables. Through that, I discovered that it's not really the plants themselves that people find offensive. It's actually the way we grow vegetables. We tend to pretend we're farmers. We like to put things in straight lines. 
Often people will put most of their budget into lumber and build raised beds. And then those raised beds actually don't look great all year long. You know, as vegetables aren't necessarily going to be attractive 12 months out of the year. I found that with my homeowner association and many of the others that I've worked with, the concern was really just disrupting the infrastructure of the landscape and then ultimately having an influence on property values. By growing vegetables just in my landscape borders, they actually didn't have a problem with me having vegetables in the front yard. That was a very empowering moment for me where I realized I didn't have to be at war with my HOA and I could actually help a lot of other people grow what they want to grow and not offend other people. That's really what's at the heart of foodscaping is just finding common ground and making everybody happy through the art and science of horticulture. How do you start foodscaping? Foodscaping is a really easy thing to start. My first step is always just to tell people to look around their yard and see where they might have Areas that the ground plane isn't engaged. Most landscapes have a tree and shrub backdrop, and then you might have big areas of open mulch space surrounding those woody elements. Identify some areas in your existing landscape and pay attention to the patterns of the sun. You're wanting to grow vegetables in more sun than shade might mean that you grow more food through the winter if you have deciduous trees, and maybe you take the summers off, which for those of us in the southeast may not be the worst advice that anybody could give you. Summers are difficult, but growing things like collards and mustard and broccoli and cauliflower and and lettuce and radishes and carrots and things through the winter season It's actually quite pleasant and very low maintenance. Try to get people to really look critically at the existing landscape and focus on the sunniest areas. Then I tell them to write down a list of what they have made for dinner over the last week or two. Then find several vegetables that recur over and over again. I'll give you my examples. We eat onions and garlic basically with every single meal. We also eat a lot of potatoes. We love to eat salsas and spaghetti sauces. So through the summer season, I focus a lot of energy on growing tomatoes. Just try to focus on a handful of plants that I can grow really well and I can grow enough of where it really does shake out that that harvest has changed my habits at the store. So I'm not having to buy onions and garlic and potatoes every time I go into grocery shop because I know I have mine that I have harvested to be able to eat. And I think that that really is one of the critical points because it can be really defeating if you grow one of everything and then you never really have enough harvest to even make one full meal. I'd rather people have the experience of growing a whole bunch of potatoes. And then when you harvest those potatoes, you think, oh my gosh, where am I going to put all of these? How will I ever be able to eat all of these? And then have them realize, oh, I can share it with people. And I can share not only the harvest with people, but I can share the experience of growing that and encourage other people to grow plants that are very practical. And that way it really shakes out that you've done something that makes a difference. I know you've talked a little bit about the plants that you grow in. What are the good plants to grow together? It's 
kind of funny. Every year I keep coming up with new combinations and actually started really simply. I found that broccoli and encore azaleas did really, really well together. I will frequently grow tomatoes next to panicle hydrangeas, things like limelight hydrangea. I'll actually use the structural integrity of those summer flowering deciduous shrubs to actually grow tomatoes up through. Then no one knows that I have a tomato planted there until they see the ripe fruit dangling and had countless neighbors ask me how I get my hydrangeas to fruit tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) It's like another bloom, isn't it? It's like an ornament. Exactly. Like, oh my gosh, did you graft a tomato onto a hydrangea? It's it's much simpler. I found that growing things direct from seed, things like kale and mustard greens and arugula at the base of something like a knockout rose, it gives that knockout rose extra interest because you have this beautiful living ground cover that you can also harvest. I haven't really found any combination that didn't work other than when an ornamental plant is really quite vigorous or in the case of an edible plant, like something like a pumpkin. Pumpkins take over a lot of room. They don't have a problem climbing over trees and shrubs either. And I actually do grow pumpkins in mass. I usually harvest somewhere between 100 and 150 fruit annually. They do sort of grow in harmony with different trees and shrubs growing over things like deciduous magnolias, Yoshino cryptomerias, different ligustrum varieties. They don't actually smother the plants, but there is a moment where you think this looks a little crazy. (laughs) I usually encourage people to grow more conventional plants. That way you'll never have that moment where you feel like things are out of control. And that's where really evaluating what you eat on a regular basis is so practical. This past summer, I did some really beautiful displays using various things like zucchini and yellow squash. I used those essentially mixed with zinnias and basil all combined along with things like encore azaleas. They looked beautiful all summer long and every day I was out being able to harvest something from those beds. And in contrast, 10 years ago, I would have not really thought to incorporate vegetables in those beds. And those landscapes were not only as useful as they are now, but they were really far less ornamental in many regards because I didn't engage the ground plan in the same way that I do now when I'm looking at any little open space that I could tuck a vegetable into. Are you expanding your beds out as you develop your garden or as your ornamental plants get bigger? Yeah, that's a great question. And I have kind of reached a point with my current landscape where I feel like it's the perfect amount of landscape to turf ratio that I can manage without feeling overwhelmed. I think that's another really important point because oftentimes, particularly in the beginning, people will actually take on more than they can maintain. I would encourage people to start small and then expand as you get comfortable and as you understand not only the growing process, but also the harvesting and eating process. You don't want to grow food that gets wasted. A lot of times, like in the case of zucchini, people will overgrow zucchini and then for two weeks of their life, they're totally overwhelmed by it. Mm -hmm. I would rather see people succession plant zucchini and only grow two or three plants than grow it over the whole course of the summer so that you have a manageable harvest for a period of time and not feel overwhelmed. That also goes with the amount of square footage that you are maintaining. So my beds on this property, I think, are the perfect size. However... 
we have purchased the house next door and we plan to open an Airbnb and actually offer these foodscaping experiences to teach people in person how to do this and then have a yard to table dinner and have cocktail classes and seed sowing classes that people can sign up for. I'm about to expand my garden double because we're taking on a whole nother property. <laughs> oh, wow. You're, you're, uh, Trying to think of a comment on this. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy might be the word. <laughs> yeah, you must have some good help, uh, I would think. You're doing this all by yourself? I have been very blessed to have fantastic help, particularly in the form of neighborhood children. They love spending their time here. They really enjoy gardening. I have two in particular, Aiden and Abby, who are featured in both of my books that just grown up gardening with me. Now that they're teenagers, it's really exciting to think about what their lives are going to be like with all the knowledge that they've been able to gather from this experience. And I will say, I think it helps that I'm not their parent. I'm the cool neighbor that they want to hang out with. And so for all the parents out there, my recommendation is to like trade kids because kids are always better behaved when their parents aren't around. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you about this because this is something I can't get in my mind how this is going to work. You've got the ornamental plant the tree, shrub, whatever. Are you preparing the soil a lot in the bed? Vegetables are needy. Basically what you're doing when you're foodscaping is you're improving the soil in all of the open areas. My beds, I improve the soil everywhere. I'm a firm believer that it all starts with soil science. All of my plants are going to grow better if I continuously add organic matter in the form of compost and also ground leaves. Mm -hmm. All of my plants, they're going to have better root system. They're going to require less irrigation. They're going to require less fertilizer. They're going to have better microbes, so they'll have better disease resistance. And of course, with the reduction of constant fertilizing, I have noticed a significant reduction in problem insects. That's actually something I've been really curious about and often get questions about aphid infestations, white flies or mealybugs. And what I have found most profoundly is that when people are doing a really heavy fertilizer treatment, the plants flush a lot of new growth. And that's actually what causes these giant infestations of insects. So I tend to be a lean grower. I had a once a really wise woman, Dr. Holly Scoggins from Virginia Tech, explain you're either a wet grower or a dry grower. You're a lean grower or a heavy grower. And I'm a lean, dry grower. And that all comes from me focusing my time and energy on soil prep and less on day-to-day -day management mm -hmm. that comes when you have soil like hard pan clay that dries out and doesn't really absorb a lot of water. It was difficult to dig into. My approach for foodscaping and my recommendation for people is start with one bed so you don't feel overwhelmed. Put some time and energy into adding organic matter into that soil so that growing plants will be easier long-term. Then you can scatter seeds. That's what we call scattering pixie dust. You'll have this amazing germination rate. You'll have far less time and money invested in growing those plants. And you'll have a much more meaningful harvest because 
you'll be able to cover your ground plane with seeds and just allow them to establish in place. And long term, they're significantly less work. So you're cultivating the whole bed and adding organic matter around your ornamentals. That's correct. When you're prepping the soil. Yes. Because this is what I was thinking. My closest experience to foodscaping would be putting a pansy bed close to some hollies. And those hollies and, and even the oak tree just reached out and just overwhelmed that bed. We weren't really fertilizing it heavy, but it was that nice, fresh, cultivated soil in that one spot. I came back to digging it lighter and it was just full of oak tree roots. And I would say you're not going to probably have the best experience foodscaping under oak trees. Yeah. <laughs> in general, I have a lot of oaks on my property. Those beds in the early days, and, and this is an important thing to note, a foodscape isn't something that is static. It changes constantly. Mm -hmm. Most of your food crops are only going to grow for about six months at a time. And then it changes. And as your landscape evolves, you may have more or less space to be able to to incorporate vegetables in. I have a bed that's like side property border that 10 years ago when I built this garden, it was one of my primary food growing areas. But in that time, I've allowed a water oak to become very well established. <laughs> and there would be no possibility that I could now grow something like a tomato or even broccoli through the winter season in there because the oak absolutely absorbs every bit of organic matter, every drop of water certainly have well-established perennials and shrubs in that border that can compete with the oak, but seasonal vegetables are going to do much better, really growing more in conjunction with something like a compact holly hedge, or as I've mentioned, encore azaleas, or mm -hmm. I would say more of the shrub base that we're used to having in, say, like a foundation landscape versus a Nellie R. Stevens holly hedge that also will root to the surface and absorb every bit of nutrients and water that you're putting into that space. Those type of plants we just need to back away from as far as trying to foodscape around them at all. Or is there something in particular that might work? What you actually might find that you have success with is growing something like a ground cover. So through the summer season, you might be able to grow sweet potatoes adjacent to those plantings and amend the area where you're planting the sweet potato slip. But then you don't actually have to cover all of that area where where those vines are going to grow. You don't have to improve all of that soil because sweet potatoes are really only setting tubers in the place where you have planted them. Sweet potatoes, for those of us in the Southeast, are a really wonderful option for a, a meaningful harvest that also helps just eliminate any sort of weed pressure because sweet potato vines are so vigorous that nothing else can really compete with them. And they make a beautiful kind of ground cover for a backdrop of a holly hedge. I think peanuts are also one plant that are very tolerant of the competition of the roots of something like a holly. Again, though, they want to be in more sun than shade. So you have to make sure that you have your exposure correct. Give them south and west facing exposure where they get as much sun as possible. I hear people talk about green mulch. Is this the same concept where you're growing thing and covering your beds? It is. I think there's a new era in the landscape world, and in part it's driven by the labor shortage and that the way we currently maintain landscapes does require a lot of human hours. And that just might not be the reality of the future. Instead of trying to maintain a mulch bed and make it weed free, 
perhaps just cover that bed with plants and then you won't have to worry about problem plants getting established and having a staff that's there constantly pool weeds or spray weeds or even applying Mm pre-emergent. I think green mulch is likely going to be something that is totally normalized in the next 20 years. And I just would love to see that food is a part of that process. I think a lot of the green mulch approach is trying to engage the ground plane with native plants that would provide habitat and better ecological services than is currently represented in the average landscape. And I see food as just being hand in hand with that because humans are also a part of these communities. The more food that we can grow locally, the better. Why not try and grow something that can be consumed right along with native plants and ornamental plants? As our building lots or our places that we live become smaller, this seems like a perfect solution for producing food. That's exactly it. The way we develop now, there just isn't room for a segregated vegetable garden. That was certainly what drove me didn't have enough sun in my backyard to isolate my vegetables where no one could see them. I think more and more that's just the case as lots are, what, an eighth of an acre or even smaller, but you might want to grow a handful of vegetables that you want to eat. Just incorporating them into those beds that exist may just be the easiest solution. More exciting foodscaping conversation with Bree Arthur after this. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. It's popular now to talk about bringing wildlife to our gardens, and I understand the importance of that. Heard it said the solution is just plant a little bit more crops that you're growing and share with the wildlife. The challenge is that the deer, rabbit, voles, and others aren't listening to podcasts where they're talking about that. They don't understand the concept of sharing. They'll take it all. What is your strategy for dealing with these rude wildlife? This is like my favorite question ever. I think it's really funny because when people are talking about attracting wildlife, they're probably talking about the animals they like, like birds (laughs) and not voles. I have yet to find anybody who is passionate about attracting more voles to their property. And it's something that we all face. That's one of the nice things that I love about this message I love that we all eat. It brings us to a place where we all have something really important in common. And as gardeners, we also have this other huge challenge in common in that we all have animals that come onto our property and cause trouble in some context or another. With animals, I actually have come up with some pretty creative and very effective strategies that are super simple. I try to concentrate on bed edges. Everybody has bed edges. Every landscape has a place where the landscape ends and the lawn starts or the sidewalk starts or the driveway. There's an edge to everything. If you just focus on planting a few key things that animals don't like, right along the edge, you might just find that you will help redirect that wildlife to someone else's yard. And that's really, for me, what it's all about. I have plenty of neighbors who aren't passionate gardeners, and they think that having 50 rabbits in their front yard is something to be really happy about. To me, that's like, oh my gosh, everything that I've been working towards is going to get eaten in like 25 minutes. My list of favorite plants to use along the edge, and I think it's actually a very practical list, 
includes arugula, which can be direct sown. So you don't even need to transplant it. You can just buy a pack of seeds and scatter the seeds along the edge. Garlic is a plant that absolutely everyone should grow. It's really low maintenance. It's a cool season. If you're planting it in the fall, I give people a broad window. I say between Labor Day and New Year's. If you can't find a few minutes of time to thumb some garlic cloves into the ground, then you need to reevaluate your priorities. <laughs> you know, <laughs> garlic is really great because above ground, the smelly foliage deters rabbits, groundhogs, deer, but then in ground, the smelly garlic bulb actually deters moles and voles, which are two problems that I know I have yet to encounter someone who wasn't complaining about moles and voles. Mm -hmm. Onions actually will do the same thing as garlic. So that's why, like, for me, onions and garlic are a no-brainer. I grow them everywhere. Every single one of my bed edges is planted with garlic and onions right now to help prevent these animals. Potatoes are also really practical in this sense because potatoes have poisonous foliage. They're in the nightshade family. You can just plant potatoes right along the edge and then that foliage will grow and animals will smell it and instinctively they know not to eat it. Now, you might find that young does or young deer, when they don't know any better, young animals will kind of browse on everything, but they do learn very quickly. I've had people say, oh, the deer did eat my potatoes, but then they stopped eating it and the potatoes grew right back. So I think all of those are plants that you can be growing right now through the cool winter season, through the summer season. I recommend growing different varieties of basil, like the lime basil, the lemon basil, the dwarf Greek basil, all of those on bed edges will really help prevent animals from coming in. Also, pepper plants are relatively helpful. Again, sometimes they will nibble a little bit, but then they quickly learn they don't like that. So I will plant all of my peppers right along the edge. And, and it's also a really easy area for me to be able to access as far as harvesting goes. Edges have lots of purposes. Number one is for animal deterring, but also for my own convenience. Then I can have my traditional landscape plants right behind that. I have definitely found that this strategy has helped protect countless hydrangeas because honestly, the deer love hydrangeas perhaps more than anything. I actually, I'd say hostas and hydrangeas and daylilies. So everything that's botanical name starts with an H. That's their number one thing to go after. <laughs> In the cool season, I will often spray things like liquid fence. My favorite repellent is I Must Garden. The reason I love I Must Garden is that it's actually rated food grade safe. So you can actually spray it on your vegetable crops and still eat them. Whereas a lot of the more traditional and stronger deer repellents are meant only for ornamentals. You do have to be creative with your animals. I actually do a two-hour webinar all about animals, <laughs> and it's always a really popular topic. <laughs> I would think it's very popular. <laughs> Is that something you can subscribe to or pay to attend? Yeah, actually, I'm working with a company to launch a user-friendly so that you don't have to be there at a certain time for a certain group, that you can actually watch live programs from me or download pre-recorded programs and have them as a resource. 
So that will be coming out in 2022. And I will have a lot of information about that in my monthly newsletters and on my website, breegrows.com. Yeah, we'll look forward to that. From what I'm gathering on foodscaping, you're just growing enough food with succession planting where you got vegetables coming off all through the season. You're not growing enough to harvest and freeze or can or preserve that type thing. I am. I actually am an avid canner and freezer. I have actually found that in some years I've canned so much that like, I didn't even need to can the next season because I've made like 120 cans of sauce. And that's what's really gotten me motivated to think more critically about how I can grow in a meaningful way to be able to donate produce to people who need it. Mm-hmm. And I have been working with local school systems with the Backpack Buddies program which is a program that provides food for at-risk students so that they have food to take home on the weekends when they aren't at school. Often, you know, they really do appreciate having fresh produce, something like carrots or radishes or potatoes or, you know, any number of fresh vegetables. It's been a a great motivator for me. I really want the next generation to have a better understanding of where food comes from. You know, I grew up in an era where food came from the grocery store, and that isn't where food comes from. (laughs) That's just one of the landing places. I'm very motivated to make sure that, you know, every eight-year-old has a better understanding that it starts with a seed. It's a farmer who is stewarding this land and taking care of those crops to make it so that we have the luxury of having food available and that we each can play a role in that. I'm very motivated to continue coming up with creative strategies to encourage places like churches and school properties and municipalities to incorporate the foodscaping ethics so that we can each reach into our community in a meaningful way by the way that we design and manage the landscapes that already exist. It's not for me about tearing out the grass and getting rid of the ornamental plants, it should never be an or, it should always be an and. How can we continue to make these landscapes work for us? And food is one of the parts of that. And I have yet to find a landscape that couldn't have some element of foodscaping added to it. That's what really keeps me motivated in recognizing that there's endless opportunities. That gets to my next question. In your book, you talk about landscape contractors planning and maintaining foodscape gardens for clients. What does a successful business model look like in doing that? It's an important thing to work closely with the client, whether it be a homeowner or commercial client. What is the expectation? What do you want to do? In a commercial landscape, it might make more sense to grow one crop in a big way. I usually would say something like grow sweet potatoes and donate them to a food bank or grow a lot of potatoes along all of these bed edges that are on these enormous properties. With regard to residential landscape, it probably looks more like something in that landscape contractor is coming in once a week or twice a month. And in the meantime, the homeowner is is taking on the responsibility of harvesting those crops for their own personal use. Unless the homeowner wants the landscape contractor to be involved in the harvesting and then donating of the produce. Generally, with residential landscapes, it's really more that the landscaper is just helping them recognize the best places in their landscapes for this implementation. 
then guiding them along with succession planting and the best choices for seasonal installations. Similar to what landscapers already do doing annual flower installations, like you mentioned with growing pansies or violas or snapdragons through the winter season. Well, there's any number of food crops that can be grown right alongside those beautiful flowering plants that would then give the harvestability. We're talking about foodscaping. What do you wish people would do differently when they design, build, or grow a garden or landscape in addition to the foodscaping? I've been in this industry 20 years now, and it's remarkable how much it's changed and how our ethic for environmentalism is now really starting to shine. My goal certainly is to hope that our landscapes will be a solution for the environmental challenges that we face and that our plants will be used as filters for cleaning stormwater so that we don't have algae blooms out in our water systems, that we've captured the runoff of fertilizer in a more efficient way, and that we're using plants more as a utility instead of exclusively for their ornamentation. And I think that we are already in that direction and that there won't be any going back. And I love that. As a horticulturalist, I want to be relevant and I want to be part of solutions. Plants are the answer to everything. (laughs) So we don't have to work too hard to make that a reality. Think that at the end of the day, it's just adding more plants to the landscape is really the solution. So (laughs) spoken like a true plant nerd. (laughs) (laughs) I like to say we were green before green was cool. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, what a privilege it is for us to be working in the green industry I look to our future and I just think we are going to be more relevant than ever, even like 10 years from now. When I talk to students in the university system, I just think they have a very, very bright future with a background in horticulture. I believe in this industry that we learn something new every day. What is the latest thing that you've learned? I have been really obsessed with soil science, as I've mentioned. For me, that came from being a Midwest native and transplanted to North Carolina now 20 years where our soils are very different and trying to figure out how I could improve my soil without bringing off-site materials. So how could I grow something that would fix my soil or not fix it, but improve it and make make it more pliable and make it hold better nutrients? And that's where for me, grains and cover cropping these agricultural elements have really just like taken over my mind, body, and soul. (laughs) It's all I think about. And, you know, we have so much information and so much data about best practices for agriculture, but we haven't necessarily converted that for residential landscapes. My goal is to take those concepts and boil them down in a way that A person like myself or a home gardener or a landscape contractor could actually apply them so that we're improving the soil by the plant selections that we're making. We're using green mulch to be able to actually mow that material back down in place and act as the organic matter that decomposes and would ultimately feed the next round of plants and make it so that we're less dependent on synthetic fertilizers, make it so that our soil retains better moisture so we're not having to irrigate as frequently as we would normally do. 
I live in a former tobacco field. So I live in all sand with terrible root knot nematode issues. Over the last five years of really implementing these agricultural practices of incorporating grains and other cover crops like daikon radish, using nitrogen fixing legumes, things like crimson clover, peanuts, and soybeans, as a dynamic part of my approach to soil management, it's been a game changer for me how I go about improving my soil now. And now it has a lot more to do with which seeds I scatter and the rotation of which I'm scattering those seeds versus spending a ton of money bringing in off-site materials. That's something that I think the landscape industry does not have a lot of experience in. I think there's endless possibilities with regard to our long-term land management strategies and really just employing these agricultural techniques that improve our soil and make growing the plants easier and also make us less dependent on fertilizer, irrigation, all of these sort of unnatural systems that we have grown so dependent on. I think those are resources that we may not always have. More we can do to like, wean ourselves off of those unnatural practices, I think the better our landscapes will be. Are you covering a lot of those concepts in your other book, Garden with Grains? Yes, that was what Gardening with Grains is really the basis of. I don't really expect people to grow wheat for the purpose of grinding their own flour. Though you can, and it's actually really wonderful, and it's a cool experience. Rather, you grow that wheat because it has a three-foot-deep root system, and it draws nutrients back to the surface. That wheat straw can be mown down in place and act as the composted layer to be able to incorporate organic matter and naturally improve that soil. Yeah. For me, that's really what my whole focus is now is brown plane coverage, creative use of direct seeding, and just figuring out how we can be as sustainable as possible to make it so that our landscapes kind of take care of themselves. I don't know anybody that's like, oh, I can't wait to go outside and be on my hands and knees weeding all day long. <laughs> You're right. And so if I can help people figure out how to engage their ground plane, improve their soil, naturally produce fertilizer and reduce weed pressure, I feel like maybe I've really solved a bunch of challenges, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Nobody likes weeding. What is your earliest garden memory? Oh, my gosh. My scent memory is chrysanthemums. We grew chrysanthemums as a kid in our landscape. Whenever I smell a mum, I have this memory of when I was like probably two and a half. My first real gardening, like vegetable gardening memory is harvesting kohlrabi with my grandfather, who is an immigrant from Czechoslovakia living in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. I had no idea how ahead of his time he was. He was growing vegetables in all of his landscape beds. Huh. Didn't think anything of it. He was the one actually who taught me about growing potatoes to deter groundhogs because my grandfather was in what would be the equivalent of like a cartoon war with groundhogs. <laughs> <laughs> and he, you know, was determined that he was going to win. And I remember vividly him going out and, and harvesting potatoes with him. And they were planted in an area where there were all these giant rhododendron in full bloom. And we were out digging potatoes. And the reason he had the potatoes was because it prevented the animals from messing with his rhododendron. French fries was the second benefit. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> 
I think that's why I'm so obsessed with growing sweet potatoes. I love sweet potato fries. So. Oh, yeah. That's you and my wife both. I just love sweet potatoes about any way you can get them. Me too. And of course, as Southeastern gardeners, sweet potatoes are something that are grown commercially here. So it really makes sense that we would grow them for ourselves simply because we have the right climate mm -hmm. and they do really well here with very little care. I am always trying to take note of what farmers are doing. I pay attention to when they plant and when they harvest and what they do, what they grow, mm -hmm. because I know that they know more than I do. You can learn so much just by paying attention, driving around, seeing what farmers are up to. So many more organic farmers out these days than what I remember 20 years ago. And they're doing cool new things all the time. I go to the farmer's market and I see these vegetables they grow. Wow, I didn't know they'd grow here. We are living in such a special time where... Mm -hmm. The possibilities are endless, and I love what's happening with the local small agricultural movement, how even somebody like me who just has a small suburban plot can feel like I'm a part of something. Yeah. You're right. That didn't really exist 20 years ago, or it was really in its infancy 20 years ago. And I just can't wait to see how that continues to grow and expand. And I have a lot of faith in the next generation. They love local. There's a, a generation that seems to really feel the connection to community. And they believe in supporting something that is a contribution to the world. It's not just an economic driver. I feel really lucky to be living in a time where a massive generation the size of millennials will be shaping the world in, I think, a, a very positive, e ecologically conscious way. Why did you decide to pursue the horticultural profession? <laughs> it's so funny. I started as a turf grass major. I fell in love with botanical Latin. <laughs> It's my second language. I mean, it's actually a struggle because I don't know common names very well, and I do refer to everything botanically. I remember my turf grass instructor saying, maybe you want to take this herbaceous landscape class and this woody landscape class since you're the only person getting A's in taxonomy. And I just <laughs> fell in love with this language and that what the language represents. When you know botanical Latin, you actually know the etymology behind it. The words are very descriptive. You understand where a plant is from and how it needs to be grown and perhaps what that plant is grown for. And I think it's a secret language that I absolutely love to be a part of. And actually changed my major to landscape design and horticulture because of my love of nomenclature, which does not make me a well-adjusted person, but <laughs> <laughs> it is genuine. When did you decide to become a horticultural communicator? Much of my life is by accident. I had met Joe Lample, the fabulous brains behind Growing a Greener World at a garden communicator's symposium back in 2009 and we had stayed in touch and he had asked me to do an episode of Growing a Greener World all about propagating plants. So that is my background is ornamental plant production. Joe just saw that I was passionate about horticulture in general and seemed to recognize that I had an ability to explain things in a way that people could understand. And I am a people person. I, I am relatively outgoing. And the early days of the pandemic, I really understood that I was not an introvert. Joe was really the person who encouraged me to take the knowledge I had and start reaching out to people who had an interest in home gardening. 
He just recognized that I was doing things a little bit differently and that the general public needed to know about it. So I really owe him so much for recognizing something that I probably wouldn't have seen and I would have just stayed in the back of a propagation house (laughs) and continued on my plant nerd journey. You know, so many plant people are introverts and, you know, at least it seems like it to me that they are. You overcame that. I think we all have an introverted side. I mean, I can definitely feel very much at peace alone in my garden, getting things done. I think it's equally important that we talk to one another and we share our failures and successes so that we can all grow better. I think probably most of what I do on YouTube, it's definitely not me being a know-it-all. It's just more of like, I'm going to try it this way and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, we will all learn from it. If it does work, we also learn from it. Although I find I learn a lot more from my failures than my successes. Well, what is your most valuable garden mistake? Oh, boy. Moving to a tobacco field (laughs) (laughs) and now buying multiple properties in a tobacco field. (laughs) Moving here into this nematode-infested ground has just been such a learning experience. I can't get over how difficult it is to grow plants in an area where the past land use has caused so much trouble. And I think that's in part why I'm so motivated to come up with solutions for the future, because through the act of agriculture and through the act of developing land, we've not always been great stewards. Then we face the consequences of dealing with those repercussions. My property was tobacco for more than 80 years in a row. That has posed a lot of challenges. And because I'm curious, I want to find solutions. All of these other people living in areas like me, most of the Southeast is at one time had been tobacco or cotton where the land is really depleted. It's not your fault that plants don't grow. You know, it's the past land use. I think that's a really important message so that people don't feel like they have a black thumb and they give up. The fastest way to feel like a failure here is to grow an heirloom tomato in the ground, especially, you know, it's going to die from something. (laughs) You know, we often laugh of like, yeah, that's actually a hundred dollar tomato fruit, (laughs) (laughs) especially if you start counting your time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think my biggest mistakes have, have actually ended up being the thing. Things that are the best talking points. So I don't really think of them as mistakes anymore. If I can prevent somebody from doing it wrong, then I've really done my job. Or if I can at least just give somebody the confidence that a plant failed, but it may not have been your fault. Like you didn't actually do anything wrong. You can't prevent nematodes. They just happen. That makes me feel like I'm helping people build confidence. People always say, oh, I have a black thumb, I kill everything. And I want to change their idea of that because we all kill plants. Maybe it's just about not taking it personally. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I always tell folks when they say they have a brown thumb or a black thumb, I say, no, it just hasn't germinated yet. (laughs) Well, and remember, it's green side up black side down. So technically, if your thumbs are black, that's good, right? That means you have soil on them. (laughs) (laughs) You you push that garlic in. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) 
Do you have a funny garden or landscape story you can tell us? Well, it is funny in retrospect. The story that led me to become an obsessive garlic planter. I had planted several thousand tulips, like how your brother at Ole Miss does those amazing displays with bulbs and stuff. And I wanted to do that in my front landscape. I just wanted to have this one area that felt like a professional had planted it. Big mass tulip display. They were so close to blooming. Like you could almost see color on the flower buds. They weren't quite open. We were standing out there admiring them. And I was with my neighbor kids who had helped me plant these. Abby, who at the time was only six, she was like, Miss Bree, why are the tulips shaking? (laughs) And one by one, those doggone voles sucked those tulips back into the ground (laughs) and they ate every single bulb in under 20 minutes. And I mean, I was heartbroken. I was like a day away from having the ultimate Instagram moment. (laughs) Those doggone voles in here, I have three cats and they're completely useless. They're actually like watching (laughs) the tulips get eaten. They're just standing there with us. They're not taking any action whatsoever. I was just so angry and I started looking up vole repellent. I ordered a bunch of it and realized that the main ingredient in vole repellent was garlic. And that was when I had my aha moment that if I just planted garlic to begin with, I, at this point, wasn't thinking as critically about just doing it along edges. I was like, okay, if I've incorporated with my tulips, maybe that will help prevent the voles from eating the tulips. And sure enough, it did. And then I started getting more creative and thinking about this whole idea of just using the edge. That was the aha moment for me, but it all started watching voles eat at least several hundred dollars worth of tulips on one beautiful April day. (laughs) You were talking about cartoon moments with your grandfather. I think I've seen cartoons on that before. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, it's it's just one of those things. (laughs) (laughs) Real life. I wonder if the guy who did those cartoons actually had that happen in his yard and he came up with that idea. Bet so. I certainly know, and I do know this, that I am not the only person that faces these mammal browse issues. I always think it's so funny when I'm doing this webinar and someone will act as if they're the only person that's ever had a squirrel take a bite out of every yeah, single yeah. tomato. <laughs> And I'm like, join the club, you know. (laughs) Have you found a solution for that? Actually, the solution is pretty simple. What they're doing when they do that is they're thirsty. They're Uh looking for a water source. So you're better just to have some bowls of water out in your garden. And actually, that's one of the things that a lot of wildlife, a lot of times animals are browsing in our landscapes, not so much for food, but for hydration, because we don't always have good water accessibility for these creatures. Now I have water out and it's made a world of difference, especially with regard to squirrels. I also will spray pepper spray that I make from peppers that I grow. I just put them in a blender. Then I spray them on my tomato plants, and that really, really helps deter a lot of the animal brows. That's a great idea. So I think maybe it's twofold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? Oh, wow. 
I am really lucky to have a number of really important mentors in my life. I've already mentioned Joe Lample, certainly Rosalind Creasy, who's written 23 books on the subject of edible landscaping, has been a huge influence in my life. Dr. Michael Durr, Dr. Alan Armitage, both from UGA, have been just endless supporters of me through my entire career from the very beginning. Dr. David Creech at Stephen F. Austin University in Texas, everybody at NC State. I owe so much to everyone. This industry is so giving and it's so supportive. I just can't imagine working in any other industry because this may be one of the most collaborative groups of people that have ever existed that work in the horticulture world. And we're just so fortunate. I'm just so fortunate to be a part of it. I'm endlessly grateful for all of the people that have touched my career in different ways. And it's exciting now that I'm starting to be that person for a new generation of people. And it's such a different experience to be the mentor instead of the mentee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you've done that for your neighbor kids. Definitely. Yes. In fact, I am taking them to sit in in college classes and I'm like, wow, I didn't get to do that when I was in seventh and eighth grade. <laughs> Plus all the other people you're influencing too. That's through books and all the other communications that you're doing. I feel really grateful for all the people who are kind enough to send an email or drop a note on social media or on YouTube and it's definitely a motivating factor to continue sharing my gardening experiences publicly because it is nice to know that what I do can help other people, whether it's growing plants or weed ID or recognizing ornamentals or, or just, you know, a creative way to have some time to yourself and mm -hmm. to just have that mental break so that, you know, you can feel refreshed to deal with everything that everyone faces on a daily basis. It's certainly something that I'm honored to be able to do and I'm very grateful for it. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have... <laughs> One of everything. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> say in my garden, I have a sanctuary. I, I think that's really what it is. It's a sanctuary for myself and yeah. for everyone who visits and for all the creatures that visit <laughs> day and night. I hope it can be a model for what suburban landscapes could ultimately be. Well, now, one thing I wanted to ask you about one of your videos somewhere, is there a Land Rover you've got in your garden that's kind of off, off to itself, or what's the story on that? Yes, it is. That's Grover the Rover, also known as the Foodscape Mobile. That is a 67 Land Rover series that actually used to be the beach buggy in Key West. Huh. My husband is an extraordinarily handy man. He works for Duke Energy and in his free time, he likes to collect vehicles, but also restore and maintain them. So Grover the Rover is the vehicle that we will hook up to the trailer to be able to move mulch. And it's the coolest vehicle ever. I love having it as a backdrop in pictures. It's very utilitarian. Looks like it's got a special little spot. Well, it does, yes. And, you know, we've been debating on where it's going to live when we have both properties functioning. I think for our visitors' sake, it's going to live in the Airbnb house area simply because it's such a fun novelty and people like to get their pictures taken with it. And it works perfectly well. Like, it's really, really fun to go off-roading in. And it's also just a fun vehicle to run into town and everybody waves at you like you're in a parade. <laughs> 
Yeah, I bet. Got my attention in the video. It's a great lawn ornament. It really is. And the fact that it runs and certainly during inclement weather in the southeast when it snows, we also get ice and then it's really dangerous to drive. Really, the Land Rover is the best vehicle for having to go out in. Like my husband doesn't have the luxury of not going to work just because it's bad weather. Yeah, the Land Rover now has heated seats for that purpose. It makes a difference, especially the older you get, the more back pain you have oh i gotta go sit out in the car for a little while you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah therapy (laughs) you're a publishing machine on your youtube channel breathe the plant lady i'm enjoying that weekly garden tour tell us about it well thank you so much it was my 2021 goal to do a better job reaching out to people through youtube I really, really have started to enjoy it. If you watch my early videos, you'll see I'm really awkward. And I thought it was super weird that I was talking to my cell phone. (laughs) (laughs) But now I recognize that ultimately there will be other people out there. I was doing them monthly. And then I recognized like the garden really does change a lot. And there's always something new and interesting. And it's been for me, like probably the best way to stay organized. Those weekly garden tours are not planned. They are in the moment. You're seeing what I'm seeing. Often I'm like, okay, I need to do that. Look at how terrible that looks, you know, (laughs) Or, or I'm seeing something bloom for the first time. And for me, it's just feels like a really authentic experience. Even though I might not get to see the faces of everybody watching it, just feels like something I can share with people. And I really enjoy doing them. They're my most watched videos. (laughs) I I don't really understand hashtags and all the marketing side of being a huge YouTube channel. And that wasn't really my goal. My goal was just to help create a community or at least have a resource that when people ask me, how do you sow poppies? I can direct them to exactly how I do it and then what they turn out to be. I am so glad that YouTube exists. And that it doesn't have to be for people with a lot of tech skills because I'm making these videos from my cell phone. I edit the videos also from my cell phone. I haven't even graduated to a computer, but I think that's part of what makes it authentic. And it's not fancy and it's not planned. It's just me (laughs) being me. I know you speak a lot, so how do we find out where you're speaking? The best way will be to visit my website, regrows.com. I will be loading my winter spring quarter right from the homepage. It will say upcoming events. And then you can just click on that and it'll show you everywhere that I'm going to be both live and virtually because now there's so much that's happening both ways. Beginning of January, I'll be launching this new platform where all of my programs will be available both for scheduling classes and for download. I'm really excited about this new era of communications. I will confess that when the pandemic hit and everything was canceled, I was completely devastated. And I just couldn't imagine how we would work around it. And then Zoom happened. (laughs) And it's amazing the accessibility that Zoom has allowed for people. And I'm glad to see that a lot of talks are now both live with in-person audiences and being recorded and available on Zoom for people who can't come in person. I think there's going to be a lot more quality information that's going to be made available and it'll all be on my website. (laughs) 
that's the hub right there to find everything, right? That's right. Tell us the address on that again. That is BreeGrows.com. B-R-I-E-G-R-O-W-S.com. All right. How about your Instagram? I am Bree the Plant Lady on Instagram and on YouTube. This has been Episode 40, Foodscaping Revolution with Bree Author. Thank you, Bree. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.